It is a blessing, isn't it, to arrive at a Sunday morning and to have the opportunity to assemble and to gather in the way that we are today with so many things about us that can distract and perhaps cause our focus to be wavered, nonetheless to assemble in the way that God has commanded will strengthen us and it's our goal that it will also magnify Him. As always, certainly very thankful for Brother Dennis and the lessons that he brought to us last Lord's Day. Glad to be able to be back today and with the discussion, Lord teach us to pray. I think you noticed with me a moment ago in Luke 11 that the first few verses of that chapter, in fact, that very phrase is found, and that's where I directed the actual title of the lesson. I think we'd all readily say that there are many things that would be component parts of a strong Christian life. Studying the Bible, assembling with the saints, the direction and the commitment and dedication that would come with, of course, service. But we'd all agree that surely prayer would have to be a component in that. That is to say, a very strong Christian will be a person whose prayer life will be reflective of trust and reliance in God. And yet today, as you'll notice on that slide, we're going to give some thought to prayer, but let the words of our Lord direct us to maybe some new appreciations and some new matters that relate to that. In fact, as we do that, I'm going to invite us to consider the lesson as follows. Basically, we'll develop the lesson in an expository fashion this morning. And we'll do that by literally going phrase by phrase through the first three to four verses of Luke 11 and just let the Lord teach us about some matters concerning prayer. As we do all of that, this next slide will be one that takes us into verse 1. Let's do that. Let me read it again. I know Brother Colonel read it a moment ago. And then these comments will follow. And it came to pass, as he, that's Jesus, was praying in a certain place, when he, that's Jesus, ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. We immediately observe then, according to the text, that Jesus was praying. He was doing so in a way that those disciples were aware that he was praying. May I say that he didn't simply go off to some silent or secluded place, at least on this occasion. There were other times the Lord did go off by Himself in order to pray. And I've invited you to notice a few passages in Luke 5, 16, Luke 6, verse 12, Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Some of them explicitly say He was alone when He was praying. You and I can draw an immediate lesson. It's perfectly fine to have a private prayer life. In fact, I would insist that we all should. But there's also times when it isn't inappropriate to at least be involved in prayer in a public way. Here Jesus was praying. The disciples were aware of it. They, it seems, were very mindful of His prayer on this occasion. It goes on to say that as He was praying in a certain place, the Greek wording there suggests that He did not simply go off to one designated place to pray. It might be you and I have a particular place at our homes or other places that we frequent that we really feel comfortable praying there, and that's fine. But you'll notice the Lord was just in a certain place. 
That is to say, it would be perfectly fine for you and I to give ourselves to prayer virtually any place at any time. Aren't we reminded by the words of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing? May I suggest that we have a vibrant prayer life, perhaps following the model we're about to read. The next thing that the text says is, when he ceased. Prayer has a point of beginning and it has a point of ending. It would not be right to say, well, I'm going to give myself to an attribute in prayer all the time. That wouldn't be biblically consistent. There's a time when prayer starts and there's a time when it ends. The Lord ceased in this praying. The next thing then that it says, one of the disciples. One of them, we aren't told which one, but one of them then made this observation, directly addressing the Master, Lord, teach us to pray. Apparently, this disciple, and perhaps speaking on behalf of the others, because notice he did say, teach us. He didn't just say, teach me. Teach us, he said, to pray. Isn't it fascinating to contemplate? Here was a grown man asking the Lord to teach him to pray. Teach them to pray. Could I invite all of us then to make this observation? Prayer is not automatic. It is something that needs to be learned. It is something that can be benefited by the instruction of somebody else. In this case, he was asking the Son of God Himself, teach us to pray. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide then, maybe a few observations would be in order. Those of us who are older, may we never forget there are younger people, maybe our children or maybe the children of a close friend, but somebody who is watching intently and learning about prayer from us. How we pray, how often we pray, the kind of things for which we pray. And may I also say that we as parents have a tremendous responsibility. Because after all, notice again, it isn't simply something you're born with knowing how to pray. It's something that has to be taught and something that's benefited by instruction. Maybe it is in that regard. I could say this to you gentlemen especially. When we are praying publicly, leading the congregation in prayer, we are leaving a lasting imprint upon individuals, both men and women, in regard to their personal prayer life. Is our prayer well directed? Is it consistent with the things it should be? Do we pray for those things that we ought? Or do we pray publicly in a haphazard way, perhaps giving the impression that this is not that significant of an activity? May we never leave that impression on anybody. But rather, teach us to pray was the question that this disciple had. Notice one last thing as the verse closes. As John also taught his disciples, you see, it was fairly common, it would seem, for the person who had a group of followers, and John had his disciples, and John apparently had taught his disciples how to pray. He had taught them the particulars and the specifics of it. And now, this disciple is asking Jesus, teach us to pray. I hope we all have an attitude whereby we too are willing to sit at the feet of Jesus and say, teach us to pray. As verse number 1 closes, 
now we notice the Lord's reply to this. As we move into that second verse, may I say this, did you notice? We live in a world today in which there is such an emphasis in many ways given to the emotional aspect of things. How do you feel about it? If you feel it's okay in your heart, many will be quick to say, well, it's got to be all right. Well, there are many whose prayer life is directed like that. I'll pray whatever's on my heart. You'll notice Jesus didn't say, well, son, don't you realize you're an adult? You ought to know how to pray by now. Jesus didn't say that to him. In fact, in verse 2, the Lord answered his request like this. And he said unto them, So although the person, the disciple, had asked Jesus, teach us to pray, the Lord now directs his comments to the group that was assembled. He said unto them, note the plural word, them, When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. And though that isn't the end, of course, let's pause at the end of verse 2 and make some more comments. So Jesus directed His attention to what the request of the person was. And as we just noted, the Lord did not rebuke him. He didn't chastise him. Rather, He said, when you pray. Doesn't that indicate that no, you and I will be those given to prayer? But then there are a few specifics that are listed. And this next slide will point out that particular passage in Scripture we often call the model prayer. This wasn't a prayer that Jesus explicitly prayed, you see. He was teaching it as a prayer of pattern for those disciples. When you pray, and now the words follow, Our Father, which art in heaven. The first thing that this prayer thus brings before our attention is a recognition of the one who is the recipient, the audience, if you please, of that prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. On that slide, I've asked you thus to notice that some things are easily observed here. We direct our prayers, of course, to heavenly, to the heavenly beings, to, to God, to, to the nature of the great God in heaven. And as we do that, we are mindful we aren't praying to the people who may be hearing us. As it was on this occasion, there may be people within hearing consideration, but we aren't praying to them. They may be benefited and blessed by what we pray, but they are not the audience. No wonder it is in that connection, our Father, which art in heaven. Let's go ahead and make this observation. If you count the words between here and the ending of this prayer, there's 59 of them. Prayers do not have to be lengthy. Maybe you have on occasion found your heart sufficiently weighed down that prayer did turn out to be lengthy. But it doesn't have to be. 59 words is all that was in this instance. I suspect we could read the fullness of this prayer in well less than a minute. When you and I pray as we should, when we pray, you see, in consistency with the Word of God, the length of the prayer is not what's pertinent. It could be brief, as this one is. It could be lengthier. As I noted earlier, there were times that the Lord went off and by Himself prayed, and some of them were lengthy. He prayed all night long in Luke 6, verse 12, in light of the decisions of the next day. 
Sometimes you and I may find ourselves in a position that maybe due to what's occurring in our life, we may spend hours in prayer. That's probably time very well spent. In this instance, the brevity of this prayer begins like this. Our Father which art in heaven, may I suggest that we initially make this observation. We call this the model prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. If we are to take some things out of this, surely we could then borrow the sentiments of a prayer like this one. It is something to seriously consider. Do you and I address God respectfully, reverently, as we begin our prayer? We should. We should honor the nature of the one to whom we're praying by recognizing that He can respond and that He has promised to do so to His faithful children. And as we address Him in this respectful way, it now brings us to the next statement. Our Father which art in heaven, and the very next thing maybe is easy to bypass. Hallowed, He says, be Thy name. Do you and I do this in our prayer life? After addressing God and making recognition of Him as the recipient of our prayer, do we immediately pronounce the magnitude and the exaltation that goes with His name? It would not be a bad idea. We understand, I suppose, the human family has often and still today takes God's name in vain. They use it flippantly. They use it trivially. They use it with nothing like the power that's actually invested in it. And yet, you and I in prayer, Jesus said, pray like this. Make a pronouncement of the hallowness of God's name. That word hallow, as you can see on the slide, it carries with it the sense of to be set apart, to declare as holy, to declare as to be sanctified. God's name is holy. Not only as you and I speak it, but the fact that we live a life in Christ should be reflective of our commitment to the holiness of that name. It's significant that Jesus thus observed, when you pray, hallowed be thy name. It is at that point, as you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, the nature of using God's name appropriately had been etched in the minds of the Jews since the strength of Exodus 20. The third of the Ten Commandments was this, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And so when you and I pray, may we not only address God as our Father, but certainly to make a pronouncement of the holiness of His name. But of course, the next statement is this one. Verse number 2, Thy kingdom come. The next element in the prayer, after the addressing of God and the assertion of the holiness of His name, was a significance on the kingdom. I don't pray about my needs next. I don't pray about my wants next. I don't pray about the particulars of my job next. I will lay an emphasis on the kingdom next. Now we know the kingdom is the church. Matthew 16 verses 18 and 19 point out to us the grandeur and the sweetness of the church. When you and I pray, it would be a good thing then next to pray for the church. Now in this case, you'll notice the Lord, because the church had not yet been established, He of course could make the statement, Thy kingdom come. 
And those disciples were at that time able to pray in earnestness for the coming greatness of the kingdom. But you and I, of course, live this side of the day of Pentecost, and the kingdom has already come. So we can't pray that exactly as it was given to them. We can't legitimately pray, Thy kingdom come, because it has already come. But we can pray for its continued strength, its continued flourishing character. We can pray that their elders and others who are the laborers in the kingdom will be strong and that they will direct it as it ought to go. We can pray that it will have the influence God would wish it to have. And we can pray that our place in it would be as God would have it to be. How often did Paul pray for the churches that he had helped establish? Did he not say in the opening chapter of the Colossian letter, I have not failed to pray for you. He prayed that congregation would be strong in the midst of a world of worldliness and temptation and things directed according to the ways of the devil. He prayed that church would be vibrant and that it would remain faithful to the calling of God. He wouldn't be out of order for us to pray for our congregation and for others in the Lord that they might remain strong too. Thy kingdom come. Isn't it fascinating to close that verse like this? Thy will be done as in heaven, so in earth. We need to make sure to include a sentiment like that in our prayer because after all, God's will is perfect and ours often is not. His consideration is ideal and ours in many cases is wayward. It should be our desire, God, that your will in light of the things I've prayed and everything else might be done fully, might be done completely, and might be done absolutely. I'm reminded of our Savior, even in the throes of the Garden of Gethsemane. Here was one who the next day he knew that what was going to happen if things continued like this was his demise, his death on the cross. What an excruciating death it would be. He prayed, Father, if it be thy will... Let this cup pass from me. He addressed his prayer to his heavenly Father, and he prayed with earnestness, but he did include this statement, Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. If he could pray in the consideration of that, that God, your will needs to be done fully and not mine, how much more should you and I be given to a sentiment like that one? God, may your will always be done. No wonder as we close verse number 2, we've been reminded of many things, but the Lord wasn't finished. Let's look at verse number 3 and see what else should be included as well. Verse 3 now says this, Give us day by day our daily bread. So far, the prayer has been fully related to things like addressing God, declaring His name as hallowed, making reference to the kingdom, and to the will of God being completely done. Only now do we have this statement, Give us day by day our daily bread. Our life in the flesh clearly involves many things that are physical. Things like food, clothing, shelter, the other particulars in life. We learn in this place that it isn't wrong to pray on behalf of those things. But did you notice again when they occur? They do not supersede the spiritual things we've noted previously. Rather, the Lord included them now. 
in it, in terms of a model or pattern prayer, isn't it significant the way the Lord did this? Give us. That word give suggests that one identifies the fact it is a gift from God. We may well be blessed to participate by our own efforts and work and in labor, but never should that take away the thought, God's the one in making this possible. Acts 14, 17 will say, It is the God of heaven who gives us rain and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with gladness. The food we enjoy, the other particulars of our life, the physical things we happen to own that may well bring us much pleasure, God's the one that makes those available and He gives them to us. He said, Give us day by day. That phrase, day by day, of course, is echoed in Matthew's presentation of Matthew chapter 6. Give us this day our daily bread is the way it's worded there. May you and I remember in that consideration this truth. Sometimes there have been those who wondered, well, why can't I just pray at the beginning of every month for the God's provision of my food for that month? Well, based on a verse like this one, that wouldn't be appropriate. We are thankful every day, and God has always desired His people to reliably and consistently and daily lean upon Him. It's not that we can ever take that sentiment for granted. Don't we remember that the manna were given to the children of Israel, and they had to gather it every day. He didn't just give it one day a week and go out and get enough to last you a week. He gave the manna every day with exception of the Sabbath and they were to gather enough on Friday to last two days. Today, give us this day our daily bread. May every day we remember the God who gives it and the blessing it is to have it. For that reason, notice that's emphasized twice in that verse. There's the phrase day by day and then there's the adjective daily in relation to bread. Every day may we pray in thanksgiving to God for the food we've got. Food is a needed thing. It's a blessed thing. And as we thank God for it, may we appreciate in the wording of the Bible that Jesus gave us examples along this line. Do you remember when He fed the 5,000 and later the 4,000? Before He distributed that food, He offered a prayer on behalf to God in thanksgiving for it. May you and I be quick and mindful to do the same. As that kind of prayer is echoed in this sentiment, let's come to verse 4. And forgive us our sins, as, or for we also forgive everyone that's indebted to us. Now let's pause before we finish the verse and note this. Now we come to a part of this that clearly will have tremendous significance for us. And forgive us our sins suggestive of the fact we're going to sin. We are going to make choices that are not good. We're going to do things we shouldn't. We're going to say things we shouldn't. And we're going to leave undone things we should do. All of them are going to fall in a category of being sinful. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Don't forget to make a petition regarding your own forgiveness. We'll need to say more about this, but let's at least comment so strongly what the Lord has included. Forgive us our sins. Notice clearly here Jesus didn't have any sins that needed to be forgiven. He never committed a sin. 
That's why, again, this is not a prayer he himself was praying. This was a prayer he was teaching them to pray. Oh, how desperately we need it. When you and I fail, it's not that we want to, but due to weakness, due to other circumstances, we falter, we stumble. He said, forgive us our sins. First thing we need to recognize is we need to admit them. We don't have any reason to try and sugarcoat them or pretend we didn't do them. We aren't doing ourselves any favor when we do that. We need to come clean, if I can borrow that phraseology, and just realize God already knows what I've done. He knows what I have failed. And I need to acknowledge it because only in that acknowledgement will that proceed toward the forgiveness that's needed. Forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. There will be occasions in this life when there are other human beings who commit infractions against us. They hurt us by what they say, or they hurt us by perhaps what they fail to do or other things they may do. When they hurt us that way, and when they come and ask for our forgiveness, notice what he says, For we also forgive everyone that's indebted to us. We have otherwise stated in the Bible the fact God won't forgive us if we refuse to forgive those who ask forgiveness of themselves. We must be people of forgiveness, not only desiring it for ourselves, but when others, in fact, ask us to forgive them, we must forgive them. Many times in the New Testament, as statements that help us understand that are presented, at least in this rather brief occurrence, we note the following. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. In Luke 17, verse 3, we learn there that forgiveness is conditioned upon repentance. That is to say, we learn something vital. When Jesus here said, Forgive us our sins, we have to repent of our sins, or else God won't forgive them. And so at this point, might we at least appreciate this truth. When we pray, may we never simply allow this phrase, forgive us, to become trivial or remote or just a habit. Because if that's all it is, it is rather powerless. Repentance has to be involved. And so if we come to appreciate what I've done as wrong, and then I earnestly pray with the intent to not do that again, or the intent to, in fact, not fall into that same trap again, then to pray for God's forgiveness will be meaningful. Forgive us our sins. And by the same token, this neighbor, this friend who has wronged us and has besought our forgiveness, if we refuse to give it, if we remain steadfast and not forgiving, we realize God's not going to forgive us either. In Matthew, the 18th chapter, Jesus, of course, taught a parable about this. You remember it well. There was a person who owed so much to the king, he could never in a lifetime have paid it. The king forgave him. The king wiped that debt away, said, you don't owe any of it anymore. But that same person was such that another person owed him a tiny little piddly amount. And yet the man demanded it of him. 
in fact, would not in any way reduce or release that debt at all. And yet the friends of that same person came and told the king, you forgave him a lot, he didn't forgive any. The king went and called the fellow back in and said, I showed you mercy. I forgave your debt and yet you wouldn't forgive the other one. We learn as that parable ended that the Lord had him thrown into prison. What does that say then about us as the parable ends and says, you go and you appreciate the message in this. We must be people of forgiveness. One last sentiment in verse number 4 is this. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've asked that you consider as we close that particular slide and close our lesson, the following observation. You and I ought never to take from that that God actually leads anybody into sin. God doesn't do that. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to live godly. He wants us to live rightly. He doesn't lead us, if you please, into sin. But what, that, what the verb suggests is this. God is the omnipotent one. He is the omniscient one. You and I upon this earth often have vision that's not as clear as it ought to be. There are dangerous spiritual pitfalls ahead of us and we can't seem to see it. And so we might make a decision that a couple of months from now will put me in a position to where my faithfulness will be challenged like it never has before. We don't know the future. God does. Therefore, in our prayers, may we petition for His wisdom. May we petition, God, help me to see and make those choices so that I can live faithfully to you always. For that reason, he said, deliver us from evil. The devil is casting fiery darts at every one of us. May we have the wisdom to perceive them, to live rightly concerning them, and to never fall prey to them. That's the kind of thing that Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Sometimes I suspect that we are tempted in our prayers to focus more on physical things. And we're thankful for them, no doubt. But did you notice how many parts of this prayer are connected to spiritual things? Wouldn't you be quick to say that the food part was the only principal thing involved in the spiritual? Everything else, forgiveness of sins, the nature of the kingdom, the will of God, hallowing God's name, addressing God as our Father, forgiveness of sin, all of that, we would say is more connected to things that are spiritual in thrust. May, in light of that, that we somewhat keep those sentiments in mind as we close this lesson today like this. May I suggest, Lord, teach us to pray. We have been blessed tremendously to have a passage like this one in the Word of God that helps us put into practice the implementation of prayer as God would find it pleasing. To summarize briefly, we notice an initial emphasis upon God and His character, His nature, appreciating that His name is to be hallowed and His will is to be done. Then, with the appreciation of the food that we enjoy and the fact that God gave it, we now understand forgiveness and the wisdom that should be ours in trying to live a life appreciating the dangerous pitfalls about us. Satan does have devices. He has means. He has a plan of attack. The devil is not haphazard.
when it comes to your life and mine, He knows exactly what you do, when you do it, how you do it, and the way you do it. And He will try to find a weakness such that He can bring into your life what ultimately will cause you to be separated from God forever. That's what He wants. No wonder Jesus said, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. But that, in the wording of verse number 4, you might be delivered from it. Today, I hope that we've each been encouraged and we've each been instructed in a better prayer life, a life that will be more fervent and more powerful in its prayer life. Today, as I stand before this assembly, may I say that if you aren't a faithful Christian, you don't even have the avenue of prayer. And how, how sad that condition is to try to think about going through this life on your own, to think about trying to find the best way yourself, and all the while being guaranteed you'll never go to heaven. But if you would in fact wish to come to the Master today, so that you have the avenue of prayer, and you are a person who then can appreciate leaning upon one far greater than you, you do that as you obey the gospel. Won't you believe in Jesus with every fiber of your being? Repent of your sins, for they what they're what nailed Him to the cross. Confess the greatness of His name and be baptized for the remission of your sins. If you have known the exquisiteness of that kind of life, but you've walked away from it, and now you've come to realize the foolishness of your choices, you can come back to your first love. God will not hold them against you, but rather He'll forgive them if you'll come to Him. Won't you acknowledge again that God is the all-powerful one? Confess those sins and repent of them. We'd be delighted to pray for you. If today we could be of help in that regard or in that way, it would be our privilege and joy. If we could simply pray for strength for your life, we'd be happy to do that too. Whatever the need of your life and this connection might be, we invite you to come and to do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.